little bit about what this conference is and isn't, but before I do, I'll give you a, a little introduction as to who I am. I was born at a very young age, <laughs> raised in the town where I grew up, and I have lived most of my life. Actually, I'm, I'm a nobody. I'm not a megachurch pastor. I'm not a pastor of any kind. In fact, I've never pastored a church. I don't have a television program. I've never spoken in a stadium or an amphitheater. And I've never made the New York Times bestseller list. But I am a brother in Christ Jesus. And that, to me, saints, is the greatest honor that a person can have, except to say, if you're a sister in Christ. That's probably a greater honor in my book. And I say that because the women in the New Testament outshined even the Lord's own disciples. So sisters, we honor you in the kingdom of God. But I am just like you are. I'm no one special. I'm, I'm someone who loves the Lord. I'm passionate about some things, all of which are related to Jesus Christ, Christ being preeminent among them. And contrary to popular opinion, I have never lost one hair on my head. Each one has been placed in its proper burial. And we know where they can be found. Let me tell you what this conference isn't and, and what it is. Um, and by the way, Frank, you're nobody. Well, why are you here? Well, very simply, I was invited to come. And I said yes. And I, I received quite a few invitations to speak in various places. I'm very selective on where I go. I just met Larry uh, yesterday. Josh and Lindsay really were the steering wheel that put this thing together. But I did say to them that I, I wanted this to be small. And I was thinking, let's have it maybe 50, 60 people, no more than that. And I think you have something like 80 signed up. I don't know how that happened because we're supposed to keep it at 50, 60. But nonetheless, usually uh, not everybody who signs up for a conference shows up. So we'll find out tomorrow. I wasn't going to tell you this, but I will tell you this. If you are bored by tomorrow night, and by the way, tomorrow night is going to be the grand finale. The, the most important thing I have to share will be tomorrow night. Uh, today is the preface. Tonight's the preface. Tomorrow morning we're going to get a little bit deeper into what I have on my heart, and then tomorrow night is going to be the most important part. And if by then you're looking for something else to do, I have good news. John Mellencamp is having a concert tomorrow night just down the street. So you have an option as to where you want to go. And we will, we will not feel bad if you go there. Okay, not at all. But you will miss probably the greatest message you would have ever heard in your life. If I do say mind saying so myself. Um, let me tell you what this conference is and isn't. Let's start with what it isn't. This is not an organic church meeting. If it was, we wouldn't have this and I wouldn't be standing up here. It is not an organic church conference. 
It is not a missional church conference. It's not a house church conference. It's not a simple church conference. It is a conference on the deeper Christian life. And that is my focus right now in this season of my ministry. And what I will have to say this weekend, what we will do this weekend, will apply to every Christian, no matter what kind of church they are a part of, whether it's a denominational church, whether it's a traditional church, whether it's an institutional church, whether it's an organic church, whether it's a home group, or whether you're not part of a church at all. It will apply to every believer and it will apply to every kind of church. So our focus is going to be our walk with the Lord Jesus. And the reason why I wanted to have it small, and I think this is probably the smallest conference I've ever spoken in, and that was deliberate. We have a, a sizable mailing list, but we restricted it to a very small uh, segment of the mailing list. Uh, and that's why you know, we have what we have, and, I, and I'm happy about that. There are three reasons why it's small. Number one, I want to be very accessible to everyone. So after the sessions, I'm going to be around to talk to you, to meet you. I know many of you by name, and some of you are Facebook friends, uh, but I've never met you in person. So I'm going to be around just to chat and, and get to know you. Number two, tomorrow, and even tonight, but tomorrow mainly, I'm going to give you an exercise and you all are going to get in groups and you are going to do something together that I think you will really enjoy and get a lot out of. And I don't know if you're like me, but I've been to a lot of conferences and for me the high points, on occasion the high points were the ministry, if it was good, but always the high point was meeting other people and developing relationships with other seeking Christians who are looking for more of the Lord and want more of the Lord. And so I want that to happen. And I will deem this a successful weekend if you can leave here and say, I met some precious saints in Missouri or Illinois or Ohio or Colorado. And I'm continuing a relationship with them. And even better, I met some precious saints in my own state. Mm -hmm. But thirdly, the reason why I wanted it to be small is because I'm going to unveil something that only um, very few people know about. Uh, I can count them on one hand. I am writing a book right now that is supposed to come out early next year. I am in the first draft of it. And usually for me, it takes me seven drafts to write a book. And the first draft looks horrible. I mean, beyond mention. It's just, you know, a bunch of paint thrown on a canvas and splattered thereon. But if God is with me, and I rely heavy on him, by the seventh draft, I might be pushing Shakespeare. If he's not with me, it's pretty lousy. I really depend on the Lord for writing. But anyway, this book is on a subject that I have spoken about in the past, and I've even written a little bit about it, just a little bit. 
but this book is going to expand that subject and go into a lot of detail. And not only that, but there's going to be an ingredient woven into this book that I'm not going to tell you about this weekend. It's going to be on reserve, so a little, a little bit of suspense. But that ingredient, and when the book comes out, God willing, and you read it, it will make the book electric. It will make it come to life. But I'm going to unveil aspects of this subject this weekend and give you a peek, a snapshot, into some of what the book is about. And quite honestly, I wanted that to be to a small group of people. And these messages will be recorded and uh, they will be released in the future. And there's going to be no charge for them. You can have them for free. We'll make them available to all of you. But here's the thing. When the book comes out, early next year, and the cover's being created right now, and so far the publisher has given me, I think, six samples, and I don't like any of them. It takes a little while to get a cover just right, which reminds me of a story that Reimagining Church back there, I don't know if any of you have read that. You can see the cover when you go back there, but the first sample that the publisher created had three houses and one of them had a steeple on it. And I almost fainted. Uh, there was no way I was going to put a book like that out. I wouldn't get hung for putting a book like that out. I mean, this, that's not, I'm not into, you know, a house with a steeple. I mean, that's not, that's not the point. So after a struggle, they acquiesced and they put that cover on, which I like much better. But anyway, when that book comes out, sisters and brothers, God willing, you will read it, and you will really like it, and there will be much more in the book than what I'm going to share with you this weekend. And you can say, I was there in May of 2012, and I heard Brother Frank share those messages live that made up this book. But if you don't like the book, you can repress the memory that you are ever here and forget the whole weekend. That's the beauty of things like this. So, you're probably wondering what is the book about and what is this weekend about and what are we doing here, right? Well, let's get into that. If you have a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. Tonight is going to be an introduction. Tomorrow morning we're going to go deeper. Matthew 8. Let's look at verse 18. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. Then a scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now that is an outstanding statement. God created 
the foxes. He created the birds. And they had a home. They had a resting place. But the one who created those things had nowhere to lay his head. One of the most arresting things in the New Testament to me, one of the most amazing things in the Gospels, is that the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who created the universe, was rejected everywhere he went. All throughout his life, he was turned away. He was cast away. He was turned down. He was unwelcomed to the point where he had nowhere to lay his head. This started at his birth. When he penetrated this earth through the womb of Mary, it was in a little town called Bethlehem, and there was no room for him. The doors of Bethlehem were closed, and he had to be born where animals were kept and fed. When he turns two years old, he is hunted like an animal by the government. And I put this in a book. But Jesus of Nazareth had no classmates in his kindergarten class. You understand? He was the only one that survived. He begins his ministry in Nazareth. And he speaks in the synagogue. And the people of his own hometown reject him. Is this not the carpenter's son? We know his brothers, his sisters. What is he talking about? We remember when he was a little boy. He used to play in the streets. Rejected in his own hometown. And then he said, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown among his family. Even his brothers, his own flesh and blood, did not believe on him. And then he came to his own people, the Jews. And John says in chapter 1 of John, He came to his own, and his own received him not. He's rejected by his own people. And the very city of Jerusalem, which was dominated by the religious rulers, not only rejected him, but they put him to death. Remember his, his heart cry, the tears that he shed, O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I wish to gather you, your children, like a hen with her chickens, but you would not have me. He tries to go to Samaria on one occasion, And they reject him out of hand. And this is what caused James and John to say, Lord, 
order us to command fire from heaven to consume them. James and John wanted them to shake and bake in Samaria. And Jesus said, you don't know what spirit you're of. The Samaritans rejected him. Foxes have holes. Birds have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Sisters and brothers, here is the creator of the universe. Colossians 1 says, All things were created by Him, Christ. And all things were created through Him, Christ. And all things were created for Him. And yet, all creation rejected the very Creator. Is that not ironic? I don't know about you, but that is mind-boggling to me. He's rejected, unwelcomed in every quarter. He has no home. He has no place to lay his head. And here is the one who created all things. Coming into the world to redeem all things. And he's given the cold shoulder everywhere. But there's one exception. One exception. It was a little village two miles away from Jerusalem. Obscure, tiny, unknown, unnoticed. That little village was the only place on earth that received and welcomed and made a home for the Lord Jesus Christ. And the name of that village was Bethany. It was the only place on earth where he could lay his head. And dear brothers and sisters, that little village was God's favorite place on earth. And that's the name of the book that will come out next year. And that's the name of this conference. What are we going to do, Frank? This weekend, we're going to talk about God's favorite place on earth. And here is the point. Jesus Christ, right now, right here in the 21st century, Jesus of Nazareth, who is still alive. Mm -hmm. And not only who is still alive, but He has been made Lord over the whole world. He is this world's true Lord. And even today, He is still rejected in every quarter. And what is He looking for? Sisters and brothers, your Lord and my Lord is looking for a Bethany in every city on this earth. He is looking for a Bethany in you, individual Christian, in me, individual Christian, and he's also looking for a Bethany and every fellowship and every church and every community. He is after a Bethany, a place on this earth that will receive him completely, that will welcome him fully. And so I want to share with you 
about what it means to properly and fully and completely receive our Lord. What it means to make a home for Him. What it means to welcome Him. What it means to be a place where He can lay His head and find rest. You know, we often miss this whole narrative that I'm unfolding for you here because it's spread out in the Gospels. You have a little bit of it in Luke. Then you have a little bit of it in John. In fact, you have quite a bit of it in John. Then you have a little bit of it in Mark and a little bit of it in Matthew. But when you put it all together and you look at it chronologically, you find that every time Jesus went to Jerusalem, He would go to Jerusalem in the daytime. And then at night, He would retreat two miles away to the little village of Bethany. And he would lodge there overnight. Because there he had rest. That was home to him. They received him. Then he would wake up in the morning and with his disciples they'd walk back into the city of Jerusalem. And then at night they'd go back. He spent the last week of his life in Bethany. At night. And in the day he would go into Jerusalem. And one night he never went back to Bethany. Why? Because he was crucified in Jerusalem. Or just outside of it. And then when he (laughs) rose again from the dead, and he stayed on earth for 40 days, and he ascended. Do you know where he ascended from? He went to Bethany. His home on earth. And the angel said, the same way you see him go, he will come back. In other words, look where he's leaving. He's leaving from Bethany. Be a Bethany and draw him back. He will come back home. It's a powerful message, saints. So tonight I want to talk to you a little bit about what Bethany was. And as I say, we'll go deeper tomorrow. Bethany was on the southeastern slopes of the Mount of Olives. And there was another place that was on the slopes of the Mount of Olives, actually in the opposite direction that Bethany was, and it was the Garden of Gethsemane. So both those places were on the slopes of the Mount of Olives. And if you were there in the first century, here's the picture you would see. The city of Jerusalem had a population of between 50,000 and 60,000 people, mostly Jews, of course. It was the religious center of Judaism. And you had the temple there. And the temple, which was refurbished by Herod, was a sight to see. It was humongous. It was glorious. And in the shadow of the temple walls, Almost in the shadow of the temple walls was this little, tiny, obscure, unimportant, unknown village of Bethany. The population was probably a few hundred people. So I want you to get the picture. The shiny, large, powerful, you know, all the Pharisees and Sadducees are there, the high priests, the priests, 
this giant city. Amazing. People would go there for the festivals to worship God. And when people would go there, when the Jews would come to Jerusalem three times a year, the population would move from 50,000 or 60,000 to between 100,000 and 500,000. I mean, this was the happening place. God put his name there. That's where the presence of God was before the Ark of the Covenant was taken away. So you have Jerusalem. And in its shadow you have this little obscure village with just a few hundred people. And where does Jesus Christ choose to make his home? Not Jerusalem. I don't know about you, but that's good news for somebody like me. Do you understand? He's not really interested in the big thing, the popular thing, the shiny thing, the attractive thing. But the humble, the obscure, the unknown, those who nobody knows about, that's where he laid his head. That's where he found rest. There were three people in Bethany whom the Gospels say Jesus loved. Now, I don't know if you realize this, but the Gospels do not say that Jesus loved many people. Now, that doesn't mean he didn't love people. He loved everyone. But when it said he loved so-and-so, pay attention, because there was something special going on in the Lord's heart. There was an affection that was being drawn out of him to various individuals. John, the writer of the gospel that bears his name, is said to have been the beloved disciple, the one whom Jesus loved over and over again in John. But there were three other people, the gospel writers tell us, that Jesus loved. And it doesn't just say it once, it repeats it several times. And they are a woman named Martha, a woman named Mary, a man named Lazarus. And they were brothers and sisters. So let me talk to you a little bit about these three people. Martha gets the most airplay in the Gospels. We hear her speaking more than all the others. We only hear Mary speak once. We only know one thing she said. Now, she did an awful lot. And the significance of what she did is amazing. But we only hear her speak. We only hear her voice once. Lazarus, we never hear him speak. Ever. And when Luke and John, when they describe these people, most of the time, Martha is listed first. And most scholars believe, and I believe this, that Martha was the older sister. Mary was the younger sister, and then Lazarus was probably the young brother, the youngest out of them all. And when you read the Gospels carefully, you kind of get an impression of what their characters are like. Martha is a very strong woman and very practical. She is the kind of person that takes charge. 
She is the kind of person that uh, blurts out whatever's on her mind. She's impulsive. But boy, she's hospitable. And she is a servant at heart. So, strong-willed, impulsive, says what's on her mind. As a servant, peerless. She's the one that just takes charge, makes sure everyone's happy, everyone's fed, everyone's taken care of. But boy, if she doesn't like something, she's going to say it. Have you ever met Martha before? Do we have a Martha in the room? I believe, and some scholars have said this as well, but I believe that Martha was essentially the caretaker of the house. I believe that the mother of these three people died at some point, and Martha took on the role of caretaker. And she was sort of the one in charge. And Lazarus was probably, you know, the younger brother, and he probably saw Martha as the mother figure. Now, we can't prove this, but I think it lines up with the character sketch that the gospel writers give us. Mary seemed to be a very quiet soul, but very sensitive and very intuitive. She was able to pick things up very quickly on a level that most people did not observe. And a very tender-hearted person. She was probably the kind of woman who, if she was in a crowded room, you wouldn't even notice her. But then when she did speak, you would be amazed at the insight she had. Wow, I never noticed that. How'd she pick up on that? And boy, she loved the Lord. She had a love for Jesus that was beautiful. And Lazarus, well, you never hear from him. Which tells me that he was probably a very quiet person. But Jesus of Nazareth was drawn to this man. Unlike anyone else with the possible exception of John. In fact, Mary of Bethany reminds us of John. And so does Lazarus. Martha reminds us of Peter. So you can actually see with the other disciples sort of uh, some of the same characteristics. There is a fourth person in the city of Bethany who's only mentioned once. And for a thousand dollars that Josh will give you upon the correct answer, does anybody know who that fourth person is who lives in Bethany? Yes. Josh, I heard three people, so that's three thousand dollars you have to pay out, my friend. Simon the leper, which indicates that this was a man who had leprosy at one time. And if we could take a Christian guess, Jesus often healed lepers. There's a good chance that Jesus healed this man of leprosy. If I was a betting man, and I'm not, I have money hidden in my shoes that says that Jesus healed him at some point. But he had to have been healed of leprosy because he's there with Jesus in his own home and he's eating with everyone else. So it doesn't make sense that he would have leprosy at that time. The scourge of leprosy stayed with him and he was known as the leper. Now, who was this man? We don't know. 
But some scholars believe that he was a relative of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Several believe, as do I, we can't prove this, but it makes the most sense to me that this was the widowed father of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. And one of the giveaways of that is that in Luke, the home in Bethany where Jesus visits and in which he has a meal is said to be Martha's house. But in Mark, where there is another meal and Jesus and his disciples are there, is said to belong to Simon the leper. And so some scholars believe that this indicates it was the same house. They all lived there. And Simon was the father. Now again, we can't prove this, but in the story that I will tell you, we're going to make him the father. This family was so dear to Jesus. And as I say, it was home for him. Being rejected everywhere else and having a home, a place to lay his head in Bethany. And this family was so precious to him. Now, I want to make an observation here that you may have never thought about. This family, these four people, were clearly disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no question about that. In fact, he was received by them, and he loved them on some level more than he loved others on some level. There was some affection that he had for them. This is very clear in the Gospels. Now, I want you to think about something here. He visited Bethany often, and he spent the last days of his life there before he was crucified rose again from the dead. He never once said to them, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. Now, I say this because there have been whole movements built on one or two passages where Jesus says to one or two people, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. And those movements have been built with young people. How many people do we have in their 20s in this room? Raise your hand if you're 20. Okay. All right. These movements usually are built with teenagers and 20-somethings who want to be radical for Jesus. Now hear me well, the Lord may say to you, sell everything you have, give it to the poor and follow me. He said it to some people in the first century, but he didn't say it to everyone. And these were his closest disciples. I'm talking about outside the 12. And he never told them to leave everything. So you cannot put the Lord Jesus Christ in a box and take one word that he gave to some and make it apply to everyone. Okay? That's the first point I want to say. And don't let anybody put you under condemnation. Now, of course, if the Lord did tell you to sell everything, or your your heart is tied to your possessions more than it should be, because we'll find out tomorrow night, Mary did something so radical. She had wealth in her hand, and she poured it out on Jesus. This is the second point I want to make. They were financially well off. 
They may have had money, but money didn't have them. You understand? It's not a sin to be rich. It's a sin to die rich. What you do with your money, that's a different story. But this was a well-off family. Think about that. Here he is with his 12 disciples, and there's some women who follow him. And there's this family in Bethany, and they are pretty well off. Now, how do we know they're well off, Frank? Well, the home that hosted two meals at least fits 17 people altogether. If you count the 12 disciples, you count the four people in that family, you count Jesus, you've got 17 people. They fit in that house. It's very clear from the Gospels. Now, in the first century, if you can fit 17 people, you had a pretty well-to-do home. Secondly, the tomb that Lazarus was laid in when he died was not your ordinary tomb. It was a tomb that well-to-do people had access to and used. It was like the tomb that Joseph of... That's it. Joseph of A... Uh, had it for Jesus, and he, he was wealthy. Lazarus was was wound in fine linen, and then Mary had a fortune that was placed in a little flask that was worth a whole year's salary. This was not a poor family, saints. Frank, what are you doing? Are you preaching prosperity to us right now? I see where this is going. No, I'm not preaching prosperity. I'm just saying it is not a sin to have a nice home. It's not a sin to have a nice car. I was carried over here in a very nice car. It's a sin if the nice home has you. It's a sin if the nice car has you. You understand? But it is not a sin to have these things. I find this fascinating that... The family that was the most important to the Lord's life was well-to-do, and he didn't ask them to leave and follow him. I find that amazing. And let me talk to you a little bit about rejection. And this is where I'm going to close this. Probably one of the most difficult things for a human being to handle is to be rejected. Can I get a little bitty amen on that? To be unwelcomed, to be unappreciated, to be betrayed. And I want you to know that your Lord experienced rejection from the time that he was born on this earth to the time that he gave up his life. Your Lord understands Rejection. He tasted it. He knew it from beginning to end. But that's not all. He said, The servant is not greater than his master. They have persecuted me. If you're going to follow me all the way, they will persecute you. They have rejected me. If you follow me all the way, they will reject you. Who's going to reject us, Frank? Well, 
First, you're going to be rejected by the world. Paul said, all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer rejection, persecution, criticism. Now, I have to throw a qualifier in here. I've been a Christian a long time. I know many of you have as well. But, um, you know, some Christians get rejected by the world because they are so weird. (laughs) You understand? They wear their Christianity like a badge. And they're just weird. I know the Bible says God wants a peculiar people, but that's the King James Version. It doesn't really mean peculiar. Someone once made the statement that the greatest compliment a Christian can receive by people who are in the world who don't know Jesus is this. Wow, Dan's a Christian? Huh, I've been working with him for six months I never knew he was a Christian but when I found out it didn't surprise me that is a powerful compliment I didn't know it he didn't flaunt it he didn't flash it he didn't act weird he wasn't unapproachable he wasn't judgmental and self-righteous and narrow-minded which is the narrative that most unbelievers tell the story of Christians they know And a lot of times, saints, that's warranted. A lot of times, we bring it on ourselves. So I didn't know he was a Christian, but when I found out, it didn't surprise me. There was something about him that was different. There was something about him that was real. See? So my point here is this. If you're following Jesus Christ, I mean seriously, and I don't think most of you would not be at this event if you were not serious about the Lord. I can say this about my ministry. Whatever flaws there are about it, whatever weaknesses there are about it, whatever that it's not, and it's not big, and it's not showy, and it's not popular, the people who are drawn to it are serious about the Lord for the most part. The people who could care less about the Lord or, you know, Jesus is kind of a a supplement to their life. You know, they have all these departments in their life, right? And then Jesus is kind of over here. Those are people who usually don't read my work or come to conferences like this. But I want to say this to you. If you're following the Lord, you will be rejected by people in the world. And that is not easy. That is not easy, especially if you're dealing with co-workers or family members. That's tough. But let me tell you something. Jesus was rejected by those outside the covenant. The Romans. Boy, they tortured him. They had no use for him. The things they did to him. The Samaritans rejected him. But you know where the most profound pain came? It's when his own people... Those who had a covenant with God rejected him. Zechariah, I was wounded in the house of my friends. The one who was with him for three years betrayed him into the hand of sinners. Brothers and sisters, your Lord was rejected not just by the world, 
but by those who had a covenant with God. He was rejected by his friends. He was rejected by his own brethren. He was rejected, if I dare say, contextualizing it by his fellow Christians. You understand what I mean by that, right? They were Israelites. The servant is not greater than his master. You will be rejected by the world. And I know many of you can probably singe our ears with stories of things you were left out of. Moves that were made to keep you out because of your Christian witness. Because of, you're a follower of Jesus of Nazareth. But the greatest pain will not be by the world. It will be the rejection by your fellow brothers and sisters. And I will tell you this, saints. If you follow Jesus of Nazareth with everything you have, Mm -hmm. you will be rejected by some Christians. I got two things to say to you about that. One, your Lord understands what that feels like. Because it happened to him. He, as Hebrews says, is touched with the feeling of our infirmity. He can sympathize with our weaknesses. Yes. Why? Because he tasted it himself. Yes. He knows what it feels like to be rejected by his own. You ought to take comfort in that. Because you can turn to him and say, Lord, listen to me. I am participating in the fellowship of your suffering. That's right. Paul said in Philippians 3 that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. When you are rejected because you're a follower of Jesus Christ, both by the world and by some Christians. Yeah. You are partaking of the fellowship, of the suffering of your Lord. And I have news for you. That's what the Christian life is. It is the reliving of the life of Jesus Christ. His experience is our destiny. We basically enter into all that he experienced with the exception of his atoning work on the cross. We don't share that. And the fact that he is God in flesh. We're partakers of the divine nature, but we don't become divine. But other than that, saints, the Christian life is the reliving and the re-experiencing of the life of Jesus Christ. And part of that is rejection. But he's been through it and he understands it. And there is a goal. There's a goal behind it. I'm going to tell you what the goal is. The goal is brokenness. The goal is that you and I would be broken. Broken bread in the Lord's hands. Why? So that he could multiply and feed others. We are of no use to God unless we are broken. And one of the ways he breaks us so that it is not I but Christ is through rejection but when rejection comes into your life and I don't mean because of things you've done 
to push people away. I mean, obviously, you know, if you're at a department store and you get frustrated and impatient with the cashier and you give the cashier an atomic knee drop and you get arrested and now your Christian friends, you know, <laughs> reject you, that's not what I'm talking about. Okay? I'm talking about because of your walk with Christ and your love and devotion for Him, it will bring rejection from some Christians. It will happen. It just happens. Even Mary, as we will find out tomorrow, was criticized bitterly by her own sister when she was merrily loving her Lord. The narrative continues. These things happen, saints. I know, I know that there are some of you in this room who have been rejected painfully by other Christians. I don't know who you are, but I know it's true. And God's goal is brokenness. He wants to break you so that He can come through you. He wants the earthen vessel to be broken so that the treasure can bleed out. But here is the temptation. The temptation is not to submit to the mighty hand of God and humble yourself at the time of rejection and to say, Lord, this hurts, this is painful, but I know you tasted it yourself and I am entering into your fellowship and I am submitting to it. And I am allowing the breaking of your hand into my life so that you can bleed through me, so that you can work through me, so that I can be broken bread in your hands, so that you can feed others through my life. The temptation is not to do that, but to become bitter. And here is what I want to say to you that is on my heart. Bitterness. We're all susceptible to this, especially when we've been hurt and rejected. Bitterness will destroy your spiritual life. I don't care if you pray an hour a day. I don't care if you read the Bible. I don't care if you preach. I don't care if you help the poor on a regular basis. I don't care if you go to church and lift your hands up and praise God during the singing. If you're bitter, saints, your spiritual life stops. And not only that, but it will defile and corrupt other people. Somehow, somewhere, it's going to come through your pores and other people are going to be defiled by it. Bitterness will destroy your spiritual life. The writer of Hebrews says, Take heed, lest any of you become overtaken with a root of bitterness, for it will defile many. Well, Frank, that hurt me so bad. You don't know what they did to me. Well, I don't know what they did to you, but I can tell you this. They didn't beat you to where your face was unrecognizable. They didn't press a crown of thorns into your head. They didn't pound nine-inch nails in your wrists where blood was squirting out in every direction. They did not crucify you. That's what happened to him at the hands of his own people. And when he rose again from the dead, he was not spewing venom. When he rose again from the dead, he was not justifying himself and vindicating himself and going after the people who crucified him. 
He was not spewing bitterness and hatred about those people who sent me to the Romans to be tortured and murdered. Not one word of defense. Not one word of bitterness. For sisters and brothers, it was all crucified with Him. And that is the Lord who lives inside of you. The Lord who experienced more rejection than you and I can even imagine. The creator of all things who was rejected in every quarter. So much so that he was put to death in the most heinous, horrible, horrific, unimaginable way that our minds could even conceive. To be crucified. And beaten profoundly before he was crucified. And yet your Lord had no hint of bitterness. That's the Lord who lives inside of you. That's the Lord who can give you that which you do not have, the ability to let go and forgive these people who hurt you so bad. And if this has not happened to you, it will happen to you. If you continue to follow Him, what happened to Him will happen to you. What's my point? God is looking for Bethany on this earth. In every city, in every home, in every individual. He is calling you and me to be a Bethany. And I want to say something. Probably all of us have received Jesus Christ into our life at some point. I would guess that this has happened. We've received Him. But brothers and sisters... Even though we have received Him in areas of our life, all of us have said no to Him and all of us have rejected Him, even not knowing it. So my prayer for this weekend and the reason why I came here is to encourage you and encourage me to inspire you and to inspire me, for us to inspire one another to be a Bethany. To receive the Lord Jesus Christ fully and completely and properly. And to explore what it means to totally receive Him in a world that has turned away from Him and rejected Him. Just as it did when He was on this earth. To be God's favorite place on earth. That's my introduction to the weekend. Now I'm going to give you something to do here. First, I want to read a text from Hebrews. So turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13 verse 12. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood. Isn't that amazing? The ones who offered him and betrayed him into the hands of sinners to crucify him. That blood that was shed through their own hands was the same blood that he sanctified them with and made them holy with. That's amazing. Suffered outside the gate. Verse 13, so let us go out to him outside the camp bearing his reproach. Sisters and brothers, this is a call to participate in the suffering, in the rejection to know the fellowship of his sufferings. And here's the beautiful thing about this. The only way we can know the power of his resurrection 
is to know the fellowship of his suffering. That's right. Amen. And the goal of rejection is brokenness. In that passage in Philippians 3 where Paul talks about knowing the fellowship of his suffering and the power of his resurrection, he says something else. He says, forgetting those things that are behind and looking forward to those things which are before us. Forgetting those things that are behind. You know, when the Lord Jesus Christ forgives, he also forgets. There is the passage in the Psalms where he says, I will take their sins and remove them as far as the east is from the west. And this is part of the new covenant. I will remember their sins no more. Now we're human. We can't, you know, turn a button on and erase something that's happened. But there is an element of that that we can taste where it's behind us, where we've let it go and we're moving forward, where it is as if it never happened. So here's what I want to encourage you to do. I'm going to make this very practical. This applies to some of you in this room. It doesn't apply to all of you. I have no idea who it applies to, and I don't need to know, and I don't want to know, frankly. This is between you and the Lord. But this is going to apply to some of you in this room, and I'm going to ask you if this applies to you, and you will know if it applies to you. I'm going to ask you to do it within the week. Because if you do not do it within the week, the hour will pass. Do you understand what I mean by that? The hour will pass, and you probably will never do it. But if you have been rejected, and it is something that comes to your mind a lot, there's a grudge there, there's bitterness there. And look, we all have different situations, and you know, there's all kinds of applications here. And you know, you have people who've been oppressed, and you have people who've been abused. And I am not suggesting to you that you enable the abuser and the oppressor and all that. Forgive and forget, and that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about something in your heart. If you're holding on to pain and rejection, and you have allowed a root of bitterness into your heart, that's what I'm talking about. But here is what I would suggest you do within the week. Get alone. Get a notebook. Sit before the Lord and think. And write down the names of the people who have hurt you so bad. And next to their names, write down what they did to you. And you take it when it's all done. And you say, Lord, I can't do this on my own. But by the Holy Spirit of God, who lives in me, and by the life of Jesus Christ, who knew more rejection than I have ever had, I release these people into your hands. And I let them go. And I let go of it. You have a prayer like that. That in the Lord, through the Lord's help, you release and let them go. And then you take that piece of paper and you burn it. You watch it go up in flames. Be careful that you don't set anything on fire while you do it. 
but you burn it. And brothers and sisters, you forget. You lay aside. You get past the things that are behind and you move forward to follow him. And I want to tell you something. If you do that, Jesus Christ, I believe, will show up and do for you what you cannot do. That's what grace is. Grace is God working where humans cannot. But to take a visible step and to do something that tangible, I believe will release those of you who need to be released. This is something between you and the Lord. Tomorrow, we're going to talk more about what Bethany means and how to properly receive the Lord and what that looks like. And when I'm finished talking to you, you're going to do something where you're going to open your mouth and share. And you're going to get in some groups. You're going to meet some people you don't know. And here's another exciting thing for me. You're going to report. And you're going to teach me some things. And there is a possibility. I don't want to make a promise. But there is a possibility that in that book that comes out next year, there may be a little note in there. A little note. I want to thank the sisters and brothers who met together in Owensboro, Kentucky. 